Revolution I can't get no call to action But I try, and I try, and I try Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, business and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp, and I'm Giles Edwards. Today I've caught Richard Shotton. In February 2019, Richard agreed to be our first ever guest to launch the Call to Action podcast. Almost exactly five years and one book better, we're snaring him for a second celebratory episode to mark the occasion. Drawing on academic research, previous ad campaigns and his own original field studies, Richard knows his onions when it comes to improving marketing with findings from behavioural science. His brace of best-selling books, The Choice Factory and The Illusion of Choice, are practical guides on how any business can use behavioural biases to win customers and sell more stuff. On the importance of removing friction, Richard says, People mistakenly fixate on helping forces when they should give precedence to hindering ones. Think more about releasing the handbrake rather than pushing on the accelerator. Welcome back, Richard. Oh, good to see you again. Good stuff. Right, seven quick fires, Richard. Okay. Football or table tennis? Definitely table tennis. I used to play table tennis loads. Yeah, definitely table tennis. I'm awful at pool. Can't, can't play anything. <laughs> more bull more or irrationality? Ah, ooh, tough one. Uh, both very good, but I go for irrationality. Nice. They were the two books you recommended in episode one. Uh, okay, okay. <laughs> Uh, number three, pressing a button for champagne or filling the bins with empty cans of Red Bull. Uh, definitely pressing the button for champagne. This is a bit of a vanity one, but Ryan and I are dying to know. Delusions of Brandia or Hellbrand's Blow? Wow. I think I would probably edge um, Hellbrand's Blow. Fantastic. <laughs> make it easy or make it difficult? Make it easy. Uh, Timo, half a chapter or a bonus chapter? Half a chapter. And finally, bagging manure for a local farm or dressing up as Mr. Blobby for kids' parties? Uh, my, my Two of my first ever jobs. I would go for, uh, I think it has to be Mr. Blobby. My brother and I both bagged the manure together and he was older and I would like hold the bags open while he, he filled them and I'd <laughs> generally be ended up arguing. So Mr. Blobby would be the, uh, the better one. Fantastic. Oh, thank you so much for joining us again, Richard. To um to start the show, we usually ask every guest about their first ever job and their first proper job. So if you haven't listened to our first episode with Richard, you can click the link in the show notes and you can hear about jobs collecting glass, going door to door, doing sales, dressing up as Mr. Blobby, bagging manure. As this is your big return to call to action, it feels fair to give you a choice of where we start so either with the fairly ambiguous vague and odd question of what's new five years and one book better or more specifically what made you write the other book let's go for the specific one so what made you write the, the, the second book well, well basically I, I, I think in the intervening five years between 
writing the choice factory and then sitting down and writing the illusion of choice i realized that there were lots of other behavioral science experiments that i st- that i hadn't included in the choice factory that i thought were super relevant for marketers and i'd also done lots more experimentation lots more research so i felt there was uh, a gap and that there was still a role for another book that could tell people maybe about slightly more counterintuitive or less well-known ideas that could be applied in marketing nice and and, and how did you find the actual process of writing the book because there's that Second album syndrome, isn't there? I think it was a little harder because I was working for my myself. So when I wrote the Choice Factory, I was I was working at an agency, and, what, and that gives you a very clear delineation between you know work time and spare time. Yeah. So I had a very efficient process for the Choice Factory. Weekends, I dropped my kids off at uh, swimming, and then I went to a local cafe, had about three hours of my own, and I would sketch out a, a mind map a flow for the for the chapter so by the end of that three-hour session i was very clear on what the, one of the chapters was going to be and then in the next week when i came back from work i would you know write the chapter so i was doing about a chapter a week it was very very efficient the illusion of choice was quite different it was much harder because i would set up my own agency by that time i was working for myself and there was always that nagging feeling that if i was spending time writing the book i wasn't spending the time doing client projects or, or, you know, going out and looking for new business. So that was the main difference. The change in my circumstance just made writing the second one, you know, a little bit, a little bit harder. I don't think I was quite as um, uh, rigorous and efficient as I could have been. Okay. See, I was expecting almost the opposite to be true. I thought you might have, um, I was, I'm going to come on to talking about friction in a minute because everyone at Gasp jokes unkindly about how often I like talking about friction. But I imagine there'd be a process where you'd found a way of removing friction and it was all much more fluid than it might have been for your first uh, choice. Well, I, 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 I wish I could say that, but that, yeah, <laughs> no, 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 that unfortunately wouldn't be true. Um, the, I mean, the only thing that, and I think this did make writing both books much easier than it could have been, is the fact that the books are standalone chapters. So I would spend loads of time researching concreteness or the, the Keats heuristic and then write about them. And then by the time I'd written that first draft chapter, you know, I was thoroughly sick to death of the topic <laughs> and I actually quite looked, looked forward to the next chapter that I was going to start because it was, it was a completely different one. So I think if, I had tried to write a book which had a like a single narrative, a single, you know, golden thread all the way through, a single argument. I would think that would have been a lot, lot harder. Splitting into chapters did make it much, much easier. And did you have to, I mentioned in your introduction that you, you do carry out, obviously, your own original field studies. Did you have to do that in order to populate the book or were you working from field studies that you already had in your pocket, so to speak? So... I mean, a lot of the, so I, I, I had a lot of the, the field, sorry, I had a lot of the existing work already, you know, written up. I'd pre-seed, you know, that's what I do day to day, pre-seeding academic papers, trying to think about how they could be applied. So a lot of the raw material was there. The reason I ran my own studies, uh, and often, you know, with the help of other people, um, was particularly when the existing study either had a flaw or had maybe been run in a slightly non-commercial setting so for example one of the studies that i, I re-ran was a brilliant um, initial study 1972 study by ian Begg, and for his study 
he recruits a group of people, reads out a list of 22-word phrases. So it's things like square door, um, flaming forest, basic fact, subtle excuse. Reads these phrases out, and then he asks people what they can remember. And he has randomized these words. So half of them are what he calls abstract phrases, things you cannot visualize, you cannot picture. Half are what he calls concrete phrases, a tangible physical things that you can visualize like a square door. And and what Beg found was that on average, people remember 9% of the abstractions, 36% of the concrete words. So you've got this massive fourfold increase in, in memorability if you use language that can be pitched. So Beg's argument is vision is the most powerful of people's senses. And if you can visualize words, they're much stickier than if you can't. Now, at first, you think, okay, that's an amazing study, super relevant to marketing, could, because what it argues is, even if you have an abstract objective like sh- showing that you're premium or trustworthy or high quality, you've got to translate that abstraction into something that people can, can visualize. Classic example is Apple. Now, you don't go out and say you've got 126 megabytes of memory, can't picture a megabyte can't picture 126 instead you say a thousand songs in your pocket that's taking a abstract idea of memory and storage but conveying it in a very concrete way so it's a really useful study for marketers but it's slightly problematic when you start digging into the methodology so firstly begged it in 1972 so what's that 50 52 years old you know, have things changed since then Secondly, he ran on students. You know, are students a, a representative audience? You know, probably not. Thirdly, you look at the sample size he did, and it was a very small sample size. I think it was of the order of 24 or 25 people. And then finally, you think about the words he used, muscular gentleman, square door, rusty engine. You know, these are not commercial terms. And then the final weakness of that study was the he asked people immediately after reading out the list what they could remember. Of course, advertisers want memory on a a longer basis. So five potential flaws from that study. What I did with Mike Trahan at uh, Leah Burnett, we re-ran the study. We firstly got a nationally representative audience, not students. We then got a much, much larger sample size, 400 plus. We then changed the words so they were commercial. We use things like fast car or happy hen or skinny jeans. And then finally, rather than asking people to call the words immediately after hearing them, we put in a slight gap. You know, it was a tiny gap, not not as long as I'd have wanted to do, but a small gap between asking them five minutes or so. And not only did we replicate Beck's findings, we saw they were even more extreme than Beck had found back in the 70s. So we found a tenfold improvement for concrete words over abstract ones. So, you know, that's one example. And I think there might be, you know, dozen, two dozen experiments in the book um, run for mainly that reason of trying to make sure that if the evidence was a bit shaky from the original academic studies, that we could do it a little bit more um, robustly. Yeah, because, of course, you need to be able to replicate in order to make the claim, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, some people seem to uh, criticise behavioural science and say, oh, look, some of these studies don't replicate. Well, of course they don't. I mean, if you look at any uh, science, not everything replicates. If you look at oncology, you know, study of uh, cancer, you have the same percentage of papers replicating as you do in social psychology. It's not a problem that things don't replicate per se. It's a problem if you don't try and replicate things and then you don't scrub the non-replicating studies from the, the body of evidence. Now, what we should be doing in marketing far more is retesting ideas that we've seen work in one area because you can only give something a genuine belief if it's been shown to work in multiple different settings multiple times. So if you if a study doesn't replicate, reject that study, ignore it. What you shouldn't do is reject the field in its entirety. I mean, that's slightly insane. I mean, there was a famous case, you know, continuing the medical analogy. Uh, what was it? Andrew Wakefield? Do you remember that about 15 years ago? Um, he claimed that there was a link between the MMR vaccine and autism. Now, it turned out that there were all sorts of methodological errors with his paper, and it turned out he had some uh, slightly dubious financial interests in the alternative uh, vaccines. So the Lancet, I believe, had originally published its paper. They retracted that paper, and then they, I think, I think he might have lost his medical license. Now, the point here is treat behavioral science just as you would treat medicine. It would be an insane reaction to hear about the story of Andrew Wakefield and then to respond by thinking, okay, well, the whole of Western medicine's bogus, let's ignore it all. What you should do is think, okay, well, that particular experiment was bogus, but you know, if we just focus on things that have been replicated, then we're in a m much better position. Now, behavioral science is exactly the same. Reject the dubious papers, uh, don't reject the whole field. And I think it's inevitable right, that, that there'll always be some tension around replicating a test or a study simply because you can't control every bit of context. So there needs to be some sort of tolerance. The, the other thing, you don't need to respond to that because that just might be my poor interpretation. But the other thing I did want to ask you about is, is like the tension or, or potential clash between heuristics and any kind of behavioral science observations. Because Daniel Kahneman said that the single biggest thing he's learned from his 60 years of running his experiments uh, says make it easy. But of course, there are instances like the IKEA effect where there is value in doing the opposite. So what I find really interesting is certainly when it comes to the commercial application of behavioral science is that there's no right answer, is there? It's just in some instances, this would achieve X and in other instances, this might achieve Y. And then given the overall context of what you're trying to do and how and where and why, you might want to opt for one over the other. Yeah, no, no I, I, th I think you've added a really interesting nuance there around, you know, th there are different ways to responding to papers that don't replicate. So firstly, there are rare occasions, we're talking quite rare here, where a academic is accused of fraud, basically. They've, they've made up the data. You know, there are tens of thousands of psychologists out there. Um, there's going to be one or two bad apples in the same way there would be in, in any field. You know, in those instances where the data has been made up, I think you need to, you know, chuck the uh, insight away and forget about it, not reuse it. 
Then there are occasions, which is far more regular, but still uh, not a dominant proportion, where through statistical chance, a finding that is not actually robust has been positioned as such. Now, if the weight of evidence becomes such that this finding is recognised not to be valid, again, you need to purge it from the database, stop referring back to it, stop applying it. But then you're absolutely right. There is a third set of studies where what you find is sometimes they apply, sometimes they don't. Now, what meta-analyses try and do is say, well, okay, let's look at all the studies out there and try and draw conclusions about their overall effectiveness and when and where they uh, work. So take, for example, something like choice paralysis. Back in 2000, Iyengar and Leper ran a very famous study where they showed that in posh supermarkets, if you set up a stall selling 24 varieties of jam, you tended to sell less than if you set up a stall selling six varieties of jam. Very famous study came known as the paradox of choice or choice paralysis. The idea that if you offer people too much choice, the act of picking can become onerous and people just walk away. Now, later work suggested that the, um, that finding was much larger than other people could discover. So it got to a stage where a lot of people were saying, okay, well, this choice paralysis stuff just it, it isn't true. However, when Chernev, I think in 2014, did a meta-analysis, so looked at loads and loads of different papers, uh, he tried to come up with some general conclusions. And what he said about choice paralysis, it's absolutely right that it says you're as likely to get extra sales from more choice as reduce sales. But, he said, the reaction shouldn't be to ignore this thing of choice paralysis. He said there are predictable moments when extra choice becomes problematic and extra choice leads to fewer sales. So, for example, if someone isn't familiar with a category, if they don't like the category, if those um, choices are poorly labelled. So, you're absolutely right. Context is important. And I think the more sophisticated view about something like choice paralysis is now it's it's it does exist, but it doesn't exist in every circumstance. But the circumstances in which it appears are reasonably predictable. So, we can um, have a a reasonably good idea whether or not it's going to occur in a, a set situation. That would, I think, is a my, kind of my view on those those papers that, that don't replicate. And I think you're right to suggest you should treat them slightly differently depending on the circumstance. And, and, I, and I think that that uh, almost caveat, I suppose, of predictable moments is so important. I'm sure you and I were together at, at Nudge Stock, as we so often are, maybe, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. And I'm sure in his usual sharp, witty way, Rory Sutherland referenced that particular jam example and, and and on the kind of choice paralysis and the amount of choice available it would be it would differ hugely if you were going on a day trip to world of jam <laughs> where you're, you know you would expect there to be like a whole plethora of choice and that's the that's kind of that wonderful predictable yeah, moment yeah no, you're absolutely right now, now i remember that now yeah yeah a, a lovely example um but you you sorry and, and, and on that you specifically mentioned well is there a contradiction between Kahneman's idea of make it easy yes. and his argument that of all the things he's learned, the biggest is that small barriers, small bits of friction tend to have a, uh, a disproportionate effect. You remove the friction, you increase behavior. But you're then right. There's a 2012 study from Michael Norton and Dan Ariely, 
which is this idea of the IKEA effect. So if people aren't familiar with the study, um, they recruit participants and half of them are brought into a room where there is a pre-assembled IKEA box and they are asked to bid on that box. And the average bid uh, is 48 cents. So if people pay 48 cents, they can take the box home with them. Next group of people, pretty similar setup. They're brought into a room. Uh, there's a IKEA box, but it hasn't been assembled yet. They then assemble that box and then they are asked how much they want to bid for it. And the average bid there is 78 cents. So in both situations, they're small sums, but that is a 63% improvement, I think. So what they argue is the more effort you put into something, you more you appreciate it. They then test that in other settings. Uh, rather than IKEA boxes, they get people to make origami birds. Again, you see the, the same finding. If people have to put effort into creating a product, they are more wedded to it. Now, you, you hear about those two studies to begin with, and you think, well, aren't they completely contradictory? But when you start to think about it and look into the circumstances that the studies are set in, you actually start to see they're telling you slightly different things. What Kahneman's talking about, and there are some brilliant studies that back this up uh, by people like Bergman and Rogers, he's talking about behavior change. He's saying, if you want to increase the probability someone does something, that they sign up for a service, they um, download a song, they buy a, you know, a, uh, a can of uh, soda, now, then removing friction generally increases the probability of that behavior change happening. Yeah. The IKEA effect in Norton study isn't measuring the same thing. It's measuring people's valuation, how, how um, high quality people think of products is. So if you want to increase someone's valuation of your product, if you want them to think that your product is better, then yeah, absolutely add a bit of friction in. Now think about the wine example. Now, one reason why cork wines are rated higher than screw caps is you have to put an effort to getting to the product. You know, it's putting that effort in that makes us appreciate it a little bit more. Kahneman's not measuring that. He's measuring behavior. So many of these supposed discrepancies are explained by looking at what the studies were trying to show in the context that was involved. Yeah, yeah that makes complete sense. Because I was going to ask when and how you would apply those for commercial reasons. And that's added, you know, the perfect answer and context to that. In terms of making things easier and removing the friction, in the quickfire, I, I mentioned uh, pressing a button for champagne. What came first, pressing a button for champagne or the Popsicle helpline, which you first ex first shared with me years ago? I love that example. Oh, okay. So, um, yeah, the pr press for uh, champagne. Very good question. I don't know the, the, the ordering of those, but the press for champagne button, if people aren't um, familiar with it, there is a, um, a very fancy restaurant in london called bob bob ricard uh it's a great name uh it's set up by uh an ex ogilvy i think creative or might be an account handler in russia called leonid shutov so his nickname is bob uh and his business partner richard and i think leonid shutov put two-thirds of the money bob bob and richard put one-third in so it's bob bob ricard so it's a great name yeah. but uh, beyond that in terms of the behavioral science part what Shootoff did is take some of that 
the creative thinking that he was renowned for in Russia and applied it to the restaurant. So he was very keen to sell as much high margin wine as possible. He wants to sell as much champagne as possible. Now, I think what's interesting about his approach is if you think about what 99% of marketers would do, 99% of marketers would think, how do we make champagne as appealing as possible? Let's tell all the diners about the wonderful vintage we've got. Tell them about the amazing bouquet and and notes that the champagne delivers. But what Leonard Shutov did is follow Kahneman's advice. He didn't focus on appeal. He focused on removing the tiny bits of friction that were putting people off ordering. It might feel like it's really super easy to order champagne in a in a restaurant. But actually there are bits of friction if you look hard enough. Now, if you are socially awkward, you might not want to wave your arm out and get missed by the, the waiter. If you're in a couple, you might not want to stop the conversation and uh, order a bottle of champagne. So these are tiny little barriers that tend to have tangible effects. So what Shutov did, these are every table and these are all you know, banquets, uh, little booth seating, banquets. He um, put a little brass plaque on each booth and in that plaque there is a little button and above the button it says press for champagne. Press that button and almost immediately a waiter comes over with your champagne menu or your glasses of champagne. You know, that to me is a brilliant understanding of human nature, understanding that what often shapes what we do are these tiny seemingly inconsequential barriers and if you put more effort into removing those, you tend to have outsized effects. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? That, that quote of yours, which I used in your intro about releasing the handbrake rather than pushing on the accelerator. Oh, yeah, although I should say, sorry, yeah, that's not my quote. So that's I do mention that in the Illusion Choice, but I, I attribute it to, to, to Tim Harford. So Tim Harford's um, economist, but increasingly writes about the overlap of economics and psychology for the FT. Uh, written some brilliant books for the undercover economist, but that is his analogy, so I wouldn't want to uh, steal okay. his thunder. Well, let's just call it a cover song because I heard it from you originally. I'm sure. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> I'll, I'll take that. But it's a great example, right? Isn't it? Because as you said, marketers would think it's easy enough to order champagne, but actually, how can we make that even easier? Put a button on the table. It's just such a great example. Yeah, and 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 you're actually. Um, I th- think you're right. Most marketers would go for for appeal. Now, people might. He was talking about ease and say, oh my God, this is so bloody obvious. Everyone knows if you remove barriers, you're going to encourage a behavior. But the argument for behavioral science isn't just that you remove a barrier and sales increase. The argument and their experiments to prove this is that people underestimate the effect. That's the key point. Now, we all know removing friction will change behavior. What people tend to struggle with is recognizing the scale of the impact. And if marketers underestimate the scale, logically, they will end up putting too large a proportion of their budget into boosting appeal, too small a proportion into removing those those small barriers. So the plea here would be for people to reallocate their budgets. Now, go through that customer journey, identify even the tiniest bits of friction and put more efforts into resolving. Yeah. It's, um, I read uh, in, our, in our research for today's episode I've, I've read quite a few interviews that you've given over the years and there's one you did with contagious where in talking about the prevalence of rhyme in advertising you make the comment that you've got this body of evidence that says it's successful yet you have an industry that rarely uses it and i 
And I've highlighted and written, tell me about it next to it and started scribbling all sorts, whether it's, you know, Binet and Field, Long and Shaw, just because um, it is quite baffling. And I wonder what you think, whether it's rhyme, whether it's use of humour in advertising, whether it's the uh, using precise numbers, which helps people, you know, believe the data they're being fed. Why is it, given there is so much evidence of what works in these different contexts, are we not quite seeing a shift back to that? Or are we seeing a shift? Because I think it's there's a slow one happening. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. That That is a fascinating question. So, you know, on the, on the case of humour, there are quite a few studies from behavioural scientists showing um, if you use humour, you tend to be more noticed, you tend to be more uh, seen as... Uh, more believed, it sticks in people's minds, and and it even goes beyond individual studies. So there is a wonderful 2009 meta-analysis by Eisend, where he looks at 38 high-quality studies into the power of humour, and he shows that there is a strong correlation between the humour and ad, uh, and then the attitudes towards the brand, attitudes towards the ad, attention levels, um, purchase intent. Not just academics have found this. There's a lovely bit of IPA data bank analysis by BNA and Field. They show that campaigns that use humour tend to get, or are more likely to get, large business effects than those that don't. So you do have this big body of evidence. But over the last 20-ish years, there has been a move away from humour and advertising. Now, that's not speculation. Um, there's Antar data, they have looked at 200,000 TV ads across the world. And back in 2004, 53% of them aimed to amuse, and we should emphasize the aimed. It's down to 34% by 2020. So this is a tactic that is shown to work, yet we are increasingly reluctant to use it. And I think some of that is the think over intellectualization of the, the the industry that we want to make things more complex and more sophisticated than they need to be and there i think some of that comes down to the final financial interests of agencies and consultants now, if you're paid by the hour a simple solution is not in your interests now, if you're paid by the hour you want to make things as complex as as, as possible so I think there is a an economic interest of the parties involved that lead to those simpler tactics often being being ignored. And if one of those simpler tactics is, for example, making things easier in a process that already exists, that also remains true to your point, right? Because as agencies or consultants, you're seen to be largely seen as creators of stuff or whatever it might be campaigns you're creating you're not removing friction yeah and and, and there I th there might be a double whammy of as an industry we, re we rely too much on claims data so we rely far too much on direct questioning and surveys we rely far too much on on, on focus groups and if you ask people whether small barriers would put them off they will they'll deny it you know people have a image that their behavior is due to, you know, their character, not tiny little hurdles. So there is sometimes a problems created by this over-reliance on direct questioning. Yeah. 
Given we were talking earlier about the kind of opposing ends of applying uh, a heuristic of behavioral science observation, are there instances where you would advise not to use humor? Um, going back to that Eisen study, uh, I think the one thing where there is a negative uh, correlation with humor and, 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 and attributes is credibility. Right. So I think they're, you know, it's not every paper supports that point, but on average, there is a reduction in credibility. Now, you still see increases in purchase intent. So I think if you were in a situation where your brand lacked credibility, that might be, if it's already a problem, you might not want to exacerbate it. So I think that could be a, a, a potential area. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Um, are there any other kind of easy uh, pieces of advice that you can give to those working in the marketing industry, things that you think, so whether it's humor, whether it's using you know precise numbers, which we haven't elaborated on yet, are there any kind of easy, quick wins Oh, absolutely. I think the great thing about behavioral science is many of these insights are often quite small changes that have outsized effects. It doesn't have to be um, a very huge scale intervention. There's often a, a disproportionate impact from, from, from small changes. Uh, you mentioned precision, which I find a, a fascinating area. I mean, the subtitle of the illusion of choice is the 16 and a half psychological biases that influence what we buy. And, and the reason that I went for 16 and a half is there's some really nice work from Schindler uh, at Rutgers University. So I think it's a, a 2006 study. And he shows people ads for a deodorant. And the ads are basically the same to everyone in the, the study. The only small change is the claim about perspiration reduction. So half the people hear the perspiration the, persp the, the deodorant reduces perspiration by 50%. The other half hear that the deodorant reduces perspiration by 47 or 53%. And then when Schindler asks everyone how accurate they think that claim is and how believable, he sees a market difference. So I think accuracy is 10% higher with the precise number. Believability is 5% higher. Now, Schindler's argument is... People learn over time that those who know what they're talking about speak. Specifically, those who are speculating from you know, poor knowledge tend to talk in, in, in generalities. So the example here might be, if someone says to you, how old's your brother? You'd say, okay, he's 51. If someone says, how old's your great aunt? You might say, okay, she's in her 70s. Now, if we know something, we tend to speak precisely if we're speculating we use generalities uh, you know over time people conflate these two things uh, and then and we start to you know almost get the logic the wrong way around if something's precise it's probably more 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 accurate more believable it comes from that position of knowledge i'm wondering whether the precision works better in a claim because it's more believable but my uh, very recent example have you ever eaten at Jolly Bee restaurant Jolly Bee no, no, food, no, no. A food chain from the philippines Jolly Bee yeah no. their pricing strategy is so precise that, that Beth, who you know, who I uh, produced the really? show with, and I went there for lunch one day. And unlike most fast food experiences, their food prices are, to quote, I don't know, Rory Sutherland, batshit crazy. So you might have a uh, you might have a chicken burger for six pound thirty seven. A drink might be one pound twelve, and yeah. whatever. And, and it's the we. I think we lasted about 
30 seconds before we just ran away because our brains couldn't understand what was happening. It was all too different. So I don't know whether, like on one hand, you could probably say that it was distinct and it was therefore memorable because, I don't know, maybe Von Restorff's studies suggest that it was so different from the kind of competitive set that I now remember it because, of course, I'm talking about it now. But ultimately, for their commercial purpose of selling food, it was it was counterproductive because we just couldn't work it out. Yeah, okay, cool. that's that's a fascinating one. So think about the various studies. There is a study from Yanishevsky and you, at, um, University of Florida, where they look at this in test and control conditions. So some people are shown a a block of cheese for five dollars. Other people are shown that block of cheese for either four dollars eighty five or, or five dollars fifteen, and they do that yeah. in ten or twenty different items. And every time they say to people, okay, you've seen the retail price. What do you think that product's actually worth? And what they find is that if people have seen a precise price, they tend to think the value of the product is higher than if they've seen a, uh, a round price. So their argument is we assume round prices, £10, £100, £1,000, they have been marked up to the advantage of the uh, seller, and marked up significantly, whereas precise prices have been marked up as, as keenly and as tightly as possible. But that study is done in quite abstract settings. It's not, did they buy the cheese? Uh, it's how much do you think it's worth? So there's an element of speculativeness there. And I think they did it on students. So that's a little bit, you know, interesting evidence, which is that precise prices are preferable. But the, 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 the best newer study around precision is one from... Uber. So Uber have a big team of behavioral scientists. They're constantly running experiments and they're the ideal experiment because when you and I get into an Uber, we are behaving naturally. We're representative. We don't know we're in a study, so we don't change our behavior. And what Keith Chen, uh, who was at the time their head behavioral scientist, he said they've tested this idea of precise prices on surge prices. And what they found was people were more likely to accept a surge price if it was 2.1x than 2x. Now, that to me is quite a powerful bit of evidence that in certain circumstances, precise prices, just as Yanishevsky and Hughes argue, are, are assumed to be better value than round ones. But now you mention that experience in, in Jollibee, the difference in the studies I've been mentioning is there one-off prices? You know, it's you see a single surge price. Uh, Yanishevka News showed you a single price for a, a a product. If you're in an environment that's, as you say, batshit crazy, if it's if you're overwhelmed by multiple different numbers, you might see something very different. So the body of evidence, I think, would be reasonably clear from behavioral science that if you're giving people a single price, make it precise. I would say the jury is out in, uh, in that if you're giving people multiple prices that then they might feel a need to add up. That might be a, uh, a, a different thing. Yeah, because of course, you know, unless you're Rachel Riley, you are going to be doing some kind of challenging maths in your, in your, in your head at some point, particularly if you assume that, you know, people might, might leave their office and go for lunch and they have a, you know, £5, £10, whatever it is, budget. It's much easier to understand if they're in budget yeah. if they're using round numbers. So I mean, the, maybe there's all sorts of context yeah, there. The, the, the only thing there would be you do have, though, a massive benefit in, in certain types of precise numbers. 
So it, as you say, people aren't amazing at maths. And one of the most long-standing ideas in retail harnesses an idea called the left-hand digit bias. So it's, or the left-hand digit effect. It's the um, idea that we treat 199 very different from two pounds. Because the argument would be, just as you say, people haven't got infinite mental capacity. So we can't encode every item as 199. Instead, we make it easy for ourselves by thinking it's one something. So as you go from that boundary of two pounds to 199, you don't get the 0.5% uplift in sales you'd expect if you know demand is in line with, with, with price. You get a much higher jump because you're going from two pounds to, to one something. It feels like a much, much bigger thing. So that problem with maths could uh, um, act towards people's benefits. And certainly data from eBay-style environments and mail-order catalogues uh, suggests that, yeah, you use child pricing, these prices that end in nine, and you do see some, some big uplifts in sales. Time, weather, and... We interrupt this podcast to announce that we will never interrupt this podcast with ads. Ads that awkwardly nudge you to contact the pod's host, Giles Edwards. Only last week, some pod-listening companies did just that, calling for guidance on proper marketing strategy. But we're not asking you to do that. Nope. Anyway, back to the show. And it's probably the world's simplest idea. I call it the golden circle. Yeah, golden shower more like. You don't want Simon Sinek, you want a proper marketing chat, don't you? Hang on. I'm mindful of time, so I'm going to I'm going to jump to listen to questions, oh, Richard, better. in the hope that we might get Ooh, okay. three yep. in. So, asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. But that's not stopped <laughs> us asking. So, um, I'm going to start with longtime listener and friend of the show, Professor Tom Elmer, who's actually asked his first ever question. He he quotes an article by Helen Edwards, so it's quite long. Bear with me, but I, I feel it's it's only appropriate to read it all out. Behavioural science has taken some hits for its inability to replicate major research studies that underpin key principles. Helen Edwards, in her year-end awards, wrote, There seemed to be so much there that was fine and smart and impressive. Intricate experiments were devised to reveal surprising biases in human cognitive processing. Inspiring stories were embroidered to show how nudges could improve social well-being. Eye-catching tenets were fashion to show us how we could better manage our brands and that was in the days when it was content to call itself just behavioral economics now it has become a self-declared science um he goes on slightly but i think you get the gist uh, and you've also touched on this earlier yes, but yeah. tom says my question is how do you respond to this criticism yeah so, so to me there's that it's it's a fundamental error of of, of thinking there which is if let's the, the same with behavioural sciences, there are ten thousand, let's say, studies conducted. If you find ones that don't replicate, the idea that you should throw your hands up and say, "Okay, well, this whole subject is 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 bogus," seems to me bizarre. You know, go back to that medical analogy. If you find out a uh, a medical uh, research paper is no longer valid, you don't reject the whole of Western medicine and start taking up homeopathy. <laughs> You say, well, let's ignore that paper and focus on the the studies that do replicate. 
So the idea that we should prioritize the studies that replicate, I absolutely agree with. What I fundamentally disagree with is the idea that if some studies don't replicate, it invalidates everything else. Why would one study not replicating invalidate a study that does replicate? The only thing that it argues for is you've got to be selective, as you should be in any area, to make sure you're not picking the bogus studies from the field, you're picking the genuine ones. So I feel that, I don't know, it's a slightly, I think it's a strange uh, critique of behavioral science. And when I raised that with Helen, I think she seemed to agree with my my point there. But um, yeah, that, I think that would be my, 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 my general response. Yeah, yeah, makes sense, complete sense. Uh, question two from Rosie is, are there any nudges, heuristics or behavioral science observations that you've not managed to replicate yet you believe in your guts to be true? Oh, yes. So uh, a, a great one. And um, I think, that, so I did some tastings with people. So I uh, did this with a, a research partner, Alex Moroshenko, and we serve people chocolate. Uh, so Alex went out, got a random group of people. We served them the same chocolate, probably like a dairy milk, I think. And half the people were told it was from Hotel Chocolat, half the people were told it was from Choc Express. <laughs> now, we were expecting the ratings of the chocolate to change. If people had heard the fancy name, Hotel Chocolat, uh, they'd rate it higher than if they heard that kind of cheap and nasty name. We didn't find that. We saw exactly the same taste ratings. Now, at first, that surprised me because there's quite a lot of evidence that um, you know, the name can affect people's uh, taste perceptions. Uh, and then, by the way, the reason we chose those two names in particular is Choc Express was the original name of Hotel Chocolate. Oh, okay. Um, so I was expect I was you know really confident that would 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 show a finding. Now looking back, I did reject and think, okay, maybe it's just a um, you know we had the wrong insight after all. Now Alex and I have chatted about it. I do wonder if the problem we had is because we were kind of stopping people in, in informal circumstances, if you tell people it's Hotel Chocolat, they know it's a corporate brand that they can freely be nasty about. If you tell them it's Choc Express, a brand they've never heard of, they might well think that the person serving them food has created this product and therefore there's a lot of um, uh, social etiquette to responding um, positively. So I wonder if that in retrospect, and this is completely my fault, I wonder if I designed the the study poorly. So I would never use that study to argue we've proved something, but I wonder if I need to go back to the drawing board and think if there's a different way of creating the study if we can get rid of that um, etiquette problem. So yeah, that's one. I, I, I kind of still believe it, but jury's, maybe we should say the jury's out and um, unless I've can rerun it in a better way. I'm not going to kind of foist the idea on anyone. That is, it's a great story. It's reminded me, funny enough, of a, I was going to say it's a study, but I'm sure it must have just been a campaign. Do you remember, did you see when Greg's entered their food into some kind of, I don't know, artisan food awards, country awards, um, as, as Greg I, and I Greg? I haven't seen the Greg's one. I've seen there's a brilliant McDonald's okay. one. And there's a few people of, um, and like there's some Dutch pranksters went to an organic kind of food festival and served i think it was chicken nuggets like sliced up into tiny yes. pieces on on um sticks cocktail sticks 
and you have these people uh visitors to the organic food fair raving about them and then when they're asked they've used a mcdonald's they kind of almost spit in disgust <laughs> and it's eventually i think revealed that they've been eating mcdonald's so yeah then there's some i've seen there's some brilliant work which is why i kind of have a gut feeling that this thing is true but maybe i i opt up the stuff yeah yeah, fantastic. I'll try and if I can find that Greg's um, video, I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. I, oh yeah, excellent. Yeah, I just yeah, love yeah, the changing Greg's to, to Greg and Greg. The only I say the only one we should say is when it comes to the videos like Greg's and the McDonald's one, you've got to be a little careful because there could be selective editing. Of course, and they could you could easily interview two hundred people and then you just put the comic um, discrepancies on um, on film. So I think it's worthy of further testing, definitely. In control circumstances. Yeah. Mm. I'm going to squeeze in, Beth had a bonus question um, for you, which I'm going to try and squeeze in quickly. What should the title of this episode be if we apply a couple of psychological biases to get people to listen? Oh, what a fantastic <laughs> idea. Well, what, well, one of the things uh, uh, I was thinking, you, you can use essentially behavioural science as, a, as an aid memoir. So you could, you know, start going through some of the biases, think how they could, they could apply. You don't have to apply them all. You know, that would be a bit, ott but you could think well social proof would essentially be trying to show about popularity so you know say most popular episode we've got that would increase uh, listening further you know use reactance telling people not to do something um, you could use scarcity how could you uh, limit the um, number of people who could listen you know give them a, a, a deadline or so i think you could take lots of these biases start using them as fodder to come up with spark ideas nice and let's say we've just listed 10 you know nine of them might be rubbish but we could you know then think well what's the one that worked quite well and and, and build on that further you know i think that's how behavioral science can can be very helpful yeah yeah i fully agreed um i know we don't have lots of time left so we can we can race through our final part of the interview which is which is our four pertinent poses now you have answered these before and i've got a note of what you said last time so um It'll be interesting to see if there's any variant. So number one is what advice would you give to your younger self? Oh, uh, great question. So I, I think um, maybe, you know, don't worry so much about things going wrong. I think I spent an awful lot of my 20s, you know, catastrophizing about what, you know, might might go wrong. And actually, when it when some of those things happen, they're not actually as bad as you think. So I think I'd tell myself to relax a bit more and, 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 and stop worrying about things that haven't quite happened yet. Yeah, great advice. Um, number two, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? I think I would try and get rid of some of our fixation with, with like zombie ideas, ideas that have been disproved or there's, there's no evidence for. You know, we keep on talking about things like trust crisis, where there is... You know, very low evidence that trust in advertising is any lower than it ever has been. Yet, it keeps on coming up as a headline in in the trade press. So, some of those beliefs that don't have much um, evidence behind them, I wish they could be killed off once and for all. Does that get conflated? Because um, oh, I forget the source. I've used it in my own talk, so I should bloody know this. But the um, job titles who are, you know, trusted lease ad execs is, you know, almost at an all-time low. Do people conflate yeah, that so, with so, their I mean, meaning that, that oh, so advertising is at an all-time low? Yeah, no, no. So, so, so that's. I mean, that's that's absolutely right. So there's a it's Ipsos Mori, I think, 
Yeah, the, ver- the veracity index. That's but it. you're right. Trust in advertisers is low. My point is this uh, is, is an, a disagreement with the word crisis. So if you read an awful lot of reports from people like Edelman, they create a sense that trust used to be brilliant in, in brands or businesses long ago. And now we have this problem with low trust. It's that insinuation that things have changed that I have a problem with because the data doesn't support it. Trust in ads is low, but it's always been low. Trust in ad execs is low, but it's always been low. The point is, if you went back to a Roman marketplace, no one would trust the olive oil salesman because they, everyone would know that salesman has a vested interest in, in, in spinning the truth. The point is we're always going to have a skepticism towards people who have a vested interest in, in spinning the truth. Yeah, It's important we make that distinction because once you recognize trust has always been low, you could either think, and this would be logical, well, how much does trust really matter if we can sell without it? That would be, I think, a fair idea. I think that would be worth exploring. Or well, my point of view is, if trust has always been low, why not learn from the brands who have managed to buck that trend? Why not learn from the tactics that have managed to, to boost trust? And then suddenly you could start thinking about things like the pratfall effect we, or the stolen thunder effect. We know that if you admit a flaw, you become more believable. Why not use that? You know, go back to 1962 and it's exactly what Avis did. We're number two, so we try harder. Um, there's research I've done that shows if you make a statement in public, you're more likely to believe than if you make it in private. You know, if we recognise trust has always been low, it opens our eyes to the long-standing tactics that have always worked well. Perfect. Um, last time you recommended more Bullmore and Irrationality. Are there any other books you can recommend for our listeners? Oh, so I've just finished Todd Rogers' Writing for Busy Readers. That's very good. Uh, I think since we last spoke, so five years ago, Alchemy by Rory Sutherland is brilliant. Um, yeah, those, those those two. Perfect. We'll link to um, Writing for Busy Readers and Alchemy. The first hasn't actually come up before, so that's ace and rare. And then lastly, Richard, we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow a hospital past that honour, depending on your view, to our guest who has to give the reason why. Would you do the honours? Ah, okay. So I think, I think that's a, a lovely idea. So for me... Maybe it was my dad or someone that told me that, you know, the way to see if someone's a decent person is to see how they behave uh, when they're dealing with people who can, can't help them in any way. So I always think, who really, really helped me when I was like first starting out, either on my own or, or trying to write about behavioral science, and I could do nothing to help those people. Uh, and it will always stick in my mind how helpful uh, Dave Trott was, you know, how helpful Rory Sullivan was. And I think for that, I'll always be, be be super grateful. So those two would be my um, uh, my recommendations. Amazing. I mean, when I wrote Illusion of Choice, Dave Trott was very, very generous with giving his time up to do quotes. Uh, and Rory Sutherland actually put on an event, even though he worked at a competitive agency, he hosted an event to, to um, help promote the show. So uh, promote the book even. Sorry. Yeah. So those two, I think, have been super kind to me. Well, I remember coming to the Choice Factory launch at Ogilvy's office as well. Um, so, yeah, yeah I, 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 I've seen evidence of Rory's generosity too, and Dave's. Yeah, and he, he, he's a, you know, both of them are very generous with their time, and they've, there's no, it, they, they've got no uh, commercial interest in helping. So, that, those, things, those two, yeah, super, super, super kind people. Great. Well, this episode is very proudly dedicated to Dave Trott and Rory Sutherland. 
So as a final call to action, you'll find links to everything we've discussed, including Richard's agency, Astro 10, writing for busy readers, alchemy, as always, and Richard's two incredible books, The Illusion of Choice and The Choice Factory, which precedes it. How else can they get more Richard Shotton? Um, So LinkedIn and Twitter, I post quite a lot about interesting behavioral science stuff if I come across an interesting experiment. But I think the, 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 the two books are the best summations of the uh, ideas from behavioral science that I think people can use. So if people do want to read Illusion of Choice and Choice Factory, hopefully they can help them in their, their day-to-day jobs. Perfect. Well, they are both linked. So listen, Richard, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a, a massive pleasure. I've enjoyed it immensely as I knew I would. Fantastic. Good to chat, Giles. Finally, thank you to everyone listening. I know I say this every time, but please do drop a review if you would be so kind for the podcast. It makes such a big difference to us. Uh, Keep your questions and guest requests coming in. You can get in touch easily by just looking for GASP online or you can email direct at calltoaction at gasp.agency. this podcast to announce that we will never interrupt this podcast with ads. Ads that awkwardly nudge you to contact the... (laughs) Sorry. Sorry.